Take your Bibles and go with me to Matthew chapter 6 while you're turning there. Uh, I want to give you a little bit of a disclaimer this morning. We're going to be dealing with a topic that doesn't normally get dealt with in Baptist churches because we like to eat. And uh, we're talking about fasting today. And it's not one of those topics that you'll hear very many sermons about usually. And I'm afraid that much of what you might hear, especially in this day and age when fasting is one of those spiritual disciplines that's starting to get a little bit of attention, that you might hear some teaching that might not be quite as biblical as it should be. I hope that won't be the case today. We're going to see what God has to say to us out of his word. So uh, as we go there, we need to be on the same page about what fasting is. I'm going to tell you what it's not. When I was in probably fourth or fifth grade, uh, we lived in Ballinger, Texas, and my dad was normally out of town through the middle of the week uh, because he was going to seminary in Fort Worth, and he'd leave on Monday and be at seminary in Fort Worth all week and then come home on the weekend where he was pastoring the church. And on this particular day, he uh, was at home for some reason, and he decided that the thing to do would be to take me out of school and take me fishing with him. Amen. That's where every one of you should have said amen on that one. Uh, what a great opportunity that was. I felt like it was just a unique opportunity to spend some time with my dad and uh, get to go fishing at the same time. So we got up early, loaded up, went to Lake Brownwood, and we started fishing. And things were great for a while. Uh, and about probably 11 o'clock or so, we got up there right after the sun came up. So we'd been fishing for a while. And uh, right after about 11 o'clock or so, I started thinking, uh, I'm hungry. And I didn't really say anything about it, but I kept thinking, surely he's going to, you know, break so we can eat. We were out in a boat out in the middle of the lake, and 11 o'clock came and went, no eating. 12 o'clock came and went, and by now it was getting serious for this the fourth, fifth grade boy. And I thought, surely we're fixing to have lunch here i started to look at those meadows thinking man that might be an option there uh that was before sushi was popular otherwise i might have tried it but uh 12 o'clock came and went one o'clock came and went and by now i'm in the back of the boat or the front of the boat actually because he wouldn't let me drive i was in the front sulking and my dad's always very patient you know understanding kind of guy <laughs> right and he said what's the matter with you boy and I said, I'm hungry. Are, are we going to eat lunch? And he said, oh, I forgot all about lunch. He hadn't lunch there. I mean, I think if I hadn't said something, we still wouldn't have eaten to this day. Now, there would be some people who would take that and say that was a good fasting opportunity. I say that was torture from my dad. That's what I think. Now, what I want you to get from that, I want you to hold that image in your head for just a minute. Here's me in the front of the boat. All I can think about is not time with my dad, which I never got in those days, nor was it I'm getting to go fishing, which I loved to do then as much as I do now. It was strictly, I'm hungry. Now, you can tell by looking at me, I don't go hungry very often. And I didn't in those days either. The opportunity for time with my dad gave way to hunger. On the other side of the boat was my dad, who was so engrossed in the project at hand, fishing, 
that he didn't even think about eating. Even though food was there, it wasn't a big deal to him. I want you to lock in on that image and let's look at what Jesus has to say. I'm going to give you this statement and I'm going to talk through some things that will come back to the statement at the end of the message. All right. Here's the statement. The speed of the, the speed at which we live our lives coupled with the vacuum packed schedules of our lives leave our souls longing for intimacy with God. One more time. The speed at which we live our lives, coupled with the vacuum-packed nature of our lives, schedule that is, leaves us longing for intimacy with God. How much do you desire God in your everyday life? In the day-in, day-out functioning that is your life, how much desire for God do you have? Now, make sure you understand, I'm not talking about desire for church stuff. I'm not even talking about desire for church people. I'm talking about when you boil everything down, do you have a passion for intimacy with God? When we come to this topic of fasting... And we ask this question, what, skip a meal? As if, are you crazy? You want me to skip a meal for what? Baptists, you see, don't really deal with fasting too much. It's just not been on our radar screen. Part of that's because our whole fellowship model is built around eating together. But there is something to it, and there's something that we need to come back to. So let's look at a couple of things. First of all, I want to notice and have you remember that as we go into this, Jesus is giving us an example. The issue that he's talking about is not fasting per se. The issue that he's talking about is the motive in fasting. For the Jews of the first century to whom he is speaking, there are three basic pillars, if you will, of their religious expression. First one we talked about last week, which is giving to the poor. Secondly, we're going to talk about prayer. That picks up after Easter. And the third one that he's going to talk about, second in our list here, is this idea of fasting. Three things that the Jews did on a regular basis as a way of expressing how committed they were to God. Jesus' point here is not to argue for or against fasting. It is to deal with motive in how we do our religious service. So let's look at verse 1 together. Spencer has that for us. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. This is the umbrella under which these three examples of almsgiving, prayer, and fasting hang. It's the principle. It's the statement that drives the things that come after it. So what he's saying is, watch your motive. Stop showing off and doing your religious activity. Don't do it so people can see it and think you're a great person. He says, essentially, if that's your motive, then you've gotten all the reward that you're ever going to get. But as he works through these three things, he gives us the proper motive, and then he promises us that there is a reward. We'll come back and end with that today. So let's pick up reading now. We're going to be in uh, actually verse... 16, 17, and 18. And here's what Jesus says. And when you fast... Okay, let me stop for a second. Notice that Jesus doesn't say we don't have to fast. Now, some people hear this and say, well, we shouldn't have to fast, based on another passage in Matthew. 
Maybe we'll get to that in a minute. Jesus assumes that it's going to happen. You see that? And when you fast, now I don't want a show of hands or anything like that, but if I were to pull this congregation this morning and ask you, don't raise your hand, and if I were to ask you, how many of you have fasted, I wonder what kind of response we would get. Now, some of you would say, well, yeah, when I go to the doctor, they say you can't eat anything from midnight until the test. <laughs> hey, whatever floats your boat, it's okay. If you want to call it, there are different kinds of fasts. What I want you to see is when it comes to an expression of our spiritual lives, Jesus assumes that it's going to happen. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. Here's the picture if, you, if you'll get this. First of all, the hypocrites here are the Pharisees. And the, what they would do is they would take ashes from you know, leftover fires and they would spread it all over their faces and their arms and their heads. And then they would take their normal robes off and they would put sackcloth on. Just think, if you will, like a burlap sack. And then they would walk around as they did this as a way of showing everybody. See, the picture of that is that you're dying, that you're sick, and you don't have color to your face or anything like that. They did this so that they could be seen. So he says, don't be like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Here's how it was seen by others. In the Old Testament, there is one place in the law... Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch. In that, we have the law given at Mount Sinai. One place where God commands the children of Israel to fast. One day a year. It's on the Day of Atonement. I'll come back to that in a minute. That's the one time, the one day out of every year that all the Jews were commanded to fast. The Pharisees, though, like modern church people, took what God said and improved on it. Now that's tongue-in-cheek, okay? We like to take what God says and essentially say, well, yeah, that's pretty good in its basic form, but let's fix this up for you, God, because you didn't quite get where you need to go. That's what the Pharisees did. They, I just told you, how many times did God say they're supposed to fast every year? Once. The Pharisees figured out God missed something there, and so they expanded that from once a year to twice a week. Just like a bunch of church people, isn't it? To take the freedom that God's given and say, well, let's do this instead. So from one day a year to two days a week, Pharisees would do this whole getup I was just talking about twice a week on Monday and on Thursday. You know why they picked Monday and Thursdays? Because they were market day. At the city. More people would be there. So Jesus captures that. Let's don't miss this. Jesus is not interested in our ability to take God's standards and make it bigger. He just wants us to be obedient to what he says. And in this case, what they had done was taken something that was very meaningful and they had so expanded it that they polluted it and they diluted it so it really didn't mean anything anymore. The time that they were supposed to do it, the Day of Atonement, was the one high holy day of the year for the Jews. It was that one day of the year when all the children of Israel commanded to fast as a way of coming back to the basic relationship of their lives. 
It got polluted through the course of the year, doing other things, being busy with other stuff, even the churchy stuff that they had to do. But on the Day of Atonement, everything stopped. The children of Israel came together. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies one day a year, such a huge event where he offered one sacrifice for the sins of all the people for the whole year. Such an important event that even the high priest, if he went in and he was out of sync, out of fellowship with God, God might zap him down. They'd tie a rope around his leg so they could drag him out if he died in there. A huge day of covenant relationship for them. The Pharisees saw that. We can do better. Twice a week, let's put on the makeup. Let's make it look good standouts in the religious crowd. And Jesus wades into that mix. He calls them hypocrites. He tells his disciples, don't do it. And through that, he screams at us through the centuries on one of the key elements of the entire Christian life. What's the purpose of fasting? Well, there was another use for them as time went on for them, there were another set of circumstances that caused the Jews of the Old Testament to participate in a fast. But it was always tied to this relationship idea that I'm talking about, this covenant with God, this agreement where God says, I will be your God, you are my people, a special people, holy to me. But you see, they were like us, and they began to wander away from that purpose. And over the period of time, they would get stuff in the way, and the relationship and the covenant would kind of fall away for them. And so occasionally, God would step in, and he said, Hey, I told you that this is how it is to be. And when it's not that way, then justice has to step in, and judgment. And so there are those occasions in the Old Testament where God says to them through a prophet... It's time for a fast, a time of national repentance to restore that relationship that is ours. Look at Joel chapter 2. You don't have to turn there. We have it here for you. Joel chapter chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart. Do you hear the separation language there? Israel had wandered from God. And God was saying, I can't have that. I won't have that. So he pleads with the children of Israel through Joel the prophet, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And what Joel has said to us now, God has said through Joel, is this, the covenant relationship is such an important thing for God that when his people wander away from it, he draws them back, but in the drawing back, he says, come back to my heart. Come back to my love. Come back to that relationship that sustains you and gives you purpose in everyday living. The fast as we find it in the Old Testament, is a mechanism that is intended to bring the people back. It's to take that thing that they thought was important, to put it in perspective and push it to the side for that which was important, which was the relationship. All in all, we could summarize what fast means in the Old Testament concept by saying that it is a denial of the physical as a reminder of the importance of the spiritual. One more time, hang on to that. 
It is a denial of the physical as a reminder of what is most important, which is the spiritual. Let's put it in the terms of food for a minute. I got to tell you, I'm starving smooth to death up here. I know you can tell. I didn't even use sackcloth and ashes and you look like I look like I'm dying. I'm sure I do. I haven't eaten for like five hours and eternity. When I get hungry, like I was in that boat that I was talking about, when I get hungry like that, my world gets real small. You know what I mean by, you know, when everything's great, I can look around, I can appreciate, oh, there's souls, hey, what's up? You look good today. But when I get hungry, it's like, I need food. And part of our makeup is that we're so driven by the physical. Psychologists have done all kinds of studies. And one of the basic drives for us is our need for sustenance. You do without food or water long enough, it will be all you think about. But the problem is, and now I'm back to that statement where I started. The problem is that we can get so busy in the process of living and so structured and packed in in our, our daily schedules that we don't think twice about eating four or five times a day And we'll go through the whole process of the day without even giving God a second thought. So part of the intent of the fast in the first place was to cause people to stop the madness and zero in on the best part of life, which is our relationship with God. To do without food for one day as a reminder that we need God more than we need anything else. Okay, now that's the Old Testament presentation. Does that have any bearing for us in the New Testament? Well, remember, Jesus doesn't command that we do it, but he does assume that we're going to do it the way he writes this passage back in Matthew 6. So should we do it as Christian people? Is it something that ought to be part of our lives? I'm going to let you decide that. I'll just say here, like almsgiving, Jesus doesn't say you have to do it, but he assumes that you are going to do it. And his whole point in doing it is do it correctly if you're going to do it. And by the way, that's a motive thing, not a structural kind of step-by-step, point-by-point, do it correctly. If we're going to do it, let's keep a couple of things in mind. First of all, it cannot be a ritual for us. Here's what I mean by that. It's got to have meaning to it. It can't just be some empty ritual that we go through the motion. This is a good time for me to stop and add to this, that one of the, what I consider to be heresies of our time, is with the emphasis on fasting and some of that that's come up, one of the things that you will hear people say, either flagrantly, or practically in what they're suggesting is that if we come together as a group and fast, kind of like the repentance of the Old Testament, but if we come together and we together want something bad enough that we're willing to fast for it, that somehow we're going to twist God's arm to do our bidding. Again, the theological term for that perspective is heresy. God doesn't do our bidding. Even if you're super hungry when you're wanting him to do it, he's not going to do your bidding. You with me so far? 
Okay, so it's not one of those things where we can all get together, even as a nation, and say, all the Christians in America, let's get together and let's fast so that X candidate gets elected president this year. You know what? I think God says, are you serious? God will not be manipulated. It doesn't matter how hungry you get. He won't be manipulated. And by the way, the sidelight to that one is fasting shouldn't be something we do to get God's attention. <laughs> I've heard that before. Well, if we'll just fast and God will hear us. Hello, God hears you anyway. God knows you better than you know you. He doesn't need you to fast in order to get his attention because it's not like God's going to go, oh, oh, well, I was not aware that's going on. I'm so glad you missed the meal so I could know that. So when we fast, if you're going to fast, don't do it as a ritual. Some religious hoop that we jump through, hoping somehow God gets, or we get better stroke with God when we do that. Let me, let me give you an example of the ritual thing now that I'm that far into it. I, I grew up in a Baptist church. My dad's a Baptist preacher. I bet you, other than the ones that I've preached, I probably only heard sermons on fasting maybe four or five times total in my life. That fasting's not a big deal for Baptists. <laughs> Look at most of us, you'll see that's true. And even the, what I have heard has been more in the latter years now because there's something of a resurgence now of some of the spiritual disciplines teaching, some of that Richard Foster and some of those guys. Matter of fact, I had a book here that I brought with me and I don't remember where I left it, so if you see one by Dallas Willard, it's mine. Uh, but there's been a resurgence in this teaching on fasting and other spiritual disciplines. And so the first time I really heard about this was when I went off to college, a Baptist college, state of Texas, actually not the state of Texas, but the Baptist General Convention of Texas, supports, puts trustees, so therefore they make the decisions for Wayland Baptist University. I went as a young 20-something-year-old guy with a family, and uh, I majored in Bible. Part of that, I had to take a class called Spiritual Growth and Development. And as I sat in this class, Dr. Gary Manning, one of my mentors now for many, many years, started teaching us about some of these spiritual disciplines, one of which was fasting. And he said something like this, what I'm basically saying to you today. If you haven't tried it, try it right. In other words, do it the right way, but it's worth a shot. And I thought to myself, I'm going to try that. So the next day I woke up and I went in and I flipped on the coffee pot, which by the way, wise people start their day that way. Flipped on the coffee pot. As I walked in to start fixing breakfast, I went, oh, wait, I'm fasting today. And so I went about my other business. Got to school, got to class, I had 8 o'clock class. I had a regular set of 8 o'clock classes in those days. And I walked in, and all these guys who were coming from the dorm, I was in married student housing, they were coming from the dorm. They'd gone by the cafeteria, and they came in, and they were carrying stuff from the cafeteria, and they were eating. And I was going, man, I'm hungry. That <laughs> That looks good. I was thinking about maybe slapping one of them and, you know, oh, no, I'm fasting. I can't. And so went through class and break between classes and vending machines there and guys are getting stuff. And I'm going, man, that looks awesome. Those cinnamon rolls out of that vending machine look good. Oh, wait, I'm fasting. Through the whole day, lunch, everything else, through the whole day, every time I would think, man, I'm hungry. No, I'm, I'm fasting. 
Now, I got to tell you something. I got zero spiritually out of that day. I was way hungry by the end of the day, and I celebrated a true, you know why we call breakfast breakfast? Break the fast of the night. I had big-time breakfast, like at 7 o'clock that night. Spiritually, I thought to myself, I ain't doing that again. Uh, you know, whatever it's supposed to do, didn't do for me. You know why it didn't work? Because I was trying to make it work. I missed the whole point of what it was about. That may not mean a whole lot to you, but you may have some friends who, for the last several weeks, have been participating in what many in the liturgical church tradition call Lent. For Baptists, you should know Lent is more than what's in the bottom of your pocket. Lent is a targeted fast. And it's done from, well, I guess in East Texas we call it Mardi Gras, to Easter. And it is a point where someone says, I want to focus my spiritual energies to this end, so I'm going to give up something until Easter. Now, when I was going through some education, living in deep South Texas, lots of folks down there participated in that. I had a professor who suggested that we give up something for Lent. I wanted to give up homework, but I couldn't do that there, and he wouldn't understand that. So I decided I would give up Cokes for Lent. Now, the difference between that, now, I'm not Catholic. I know some of you sitting there go, well, that's blasphemy. You can't say that in a Baptist church. It's okay. Okay biblical it's okay i went through that stretch of time drank no cokes lost 400 pounds and got not much out of it spiritually now that doesn't mean that other people can't get anything out of it i'm just telling you for me it just didn't do it but again i wasn't focused in on the reason for it What I want you to hear me say with all of this is you can jump through religious hoops or other hoops. You can do this fasting thing 300 days a year. But if you miss the point of it, it's pointless for us. So let's come back to the point. It is a denial of physical to emphasize the importance of the spiritual. I had a youth minister that worked with me in Edinburgh. Great guy. Done a lot of things very, very well. One year, the teenagers got to a particular part. I think it was in the summertime, best I can remember, because there were kids around the church all that week. And he said to his kids in the youth group, we're going to have a media fast for one week. You know what a media fast is? It's where you give up television, video games, These days we would have to say smartphones, any of those things that tear at our attention. You want to have a lot of fun? Go someplace where there's a bunch of kids, and I don't mean just teenagers, but just kids. And by the way, y'all can watch this too. And watch somebody if you borrow their cell phone and don't give it back to them. The text messaging of this day and age has taken the place of much verbal communication. People go into withdrawals if they don't have their phone. 
So he's talking about doing that with those kids for a week at a time. I saw kids coming around the church. They were, they were like in spasms. No video games for a week? Are you kidding? What I really enjoyed watching was some of those kids who would be sitting there at the church and Nick, by the way, on their phones, and Nick would walk by and as he was coming in, they'd hear him coming, they'd stick their phone under their legs so that he wouldn't see it. Now you suppose they're doing much good spiritually with that? You can jump through a thousand religious hoops, but if we miss the point, it's pointless. Here's my definition of fasting. It is a definitive move in which we recenter ourselves on God's best. If you're prone to write anything down, write that down. It is a definitive move where we recenter ourselves on God's best. What is God's best for you? I know it's easy for us to hear that and say, well, God's best for me is a Lamborghini. I would be much better off if I was driving a Lamborghini. God's best for me is a new boat or whatever it happens to be. God's best for you is God. But now I'm back to that statement where I started. We are so fast in the way we live. And we pack so much into the lives that we live that God's best takes a back seat if it takes a seat at all in our lives. And one of the things that I believe God was about when he emphasized for them, mandated it for Old Testament Israel, that they take a day and the physical stuff is just pushed aside to recenter on God's best, which is his relationship with them. God did that because he knows, he created us, he knows that our tendency is to push him to the edges of our lives when he has to be the center. That fits. If you take that definition I just gave you and go back to the Old Testament, it fits why he would tell them to do that on the Day of Atonement. Because that's the day on the whole year where they come back to square one, which is a relationship with him in the first place. And so he deals with their sin on the Day of Atonement, and it comes back and says, this is important for you. It also fits why they would do it on a day of national repentance because the whole nation had wandered away from God. And so he says, come and have a fast. Come back to me. Push aside the physical to focus on the best, which is our relationship with one another. It also fits Jesus. You remember when Jesus fasted, Matthew chapter 4? It says that he was baptized by John and then the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And for how many days did he fast? Forty. I don't like 40 minutes. I'm not going to try 40 hours, and 40 days is ridiculous to me. Which tells you something about my spiritual immaturity, doesn't it? Why do you think Jesus fasted for 40 days? We don't usually think in those kind of questions, those terms. We, We just know that he did it. But why did he do it? Well, we know it wasn't for repentance. He didn't need that. Jesus was on the verge, after that baptism by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, Jesus was on the verge of kicking off the most critical three and a half years in all of human history. 
Do you think it was important to him that he get it right with his heavenly father? For 40 days, he did away with the physical to focus on the best and to get centered with God's plan for his life. Listen, if it's important enough for Jesus to do that, maybe it's important enough for us from time to time to take the physical of our lives, whatever it happens to be, and push it to the periphery where it belongs so that he can be the center. All through the New Testament, when we find the church involved in fasting, inevitably God is at work doing something special. You know the church at Antioch? It says we're praying and fasting when the Holy Spirit said to them, set aside Paul and this other guy. What's his name? Barnabas. To do what? To go take the gospel to places that had never gone. You see, there's something about getting re-centered with God, pushing the peripheral to the edge and coming back to the central. There's something about being able to hear God at that level that changes us and then in turn changes those around us. You know, as a church, if we're going to be what God wants us to be, we're going to have to develop the ability to be centered with God. To be able to figure out that's peripheral, that's secondary. Those things are important, but they're not critical. This relationship with him is most important for us. Sometimes it may mean that we as individuals will have to step back from the world at large, push it aside, and get busy with God. Here's a good quote for you. If Satan can't get you to do the wrong thing, he'll just try to keep you from doing the best thing. We can do a lot of right things tied to church, functioning as individual Christians the way we know we should. Satan can't get you to... By the way, he's really good at getting you to do the wrong thing. Most of us don't fall into temptation. We jump. But if he can't get us there... He'll get us refocused, and we'll do the right things, but not the best thing. What is the best thing for us? I believe that it comes back to relationship. Created by a holy God for a relationship with him. Sin messes that up. Totally jacks it up. And so there's something that we have to do. Almost hesitate to say that because we get so caught up on the do stuff that we want to write grace out of it. You can't earn your way into favor with God or anything like that. But God does say you have responsibility in your life to the point that he said to Old Testament Israel, that Jesus modeled it, that the disciples modeled it in the early church, that he says to us, do the best thing. So now I'm back to that statement where I started. We are so busy in our lives, living at warp speed. And on top of the living at warp speed part of it, we're also living what I call it vacuum-packed schedules. Here's where I got that picture, okay, in my mind. Uh, I was having trouble sleeping not too long ago, so I was up watching... 
uh, some late night television. Actually, it was early morning, probably 3 o'clock in the morning, something like that. And so I was watching this television show, thinking to myself, why am I watching this? This is dumb. If one of those commercials came on that I thought, surely people don't spend money on that kind of stuff. But here's the basic idea. You can take a, cloth, a, a bunch of clothes and stick them in this plastic bag that they're trying to sell. Some of you bought them, I see. Stick them in this plastic bag, hook a vacuum cleaner to it, and you know what happens? Like freeze-dried clothes. You can stick them in your shirt pocket when it's over with. I mean, they take sweaters and blankets, and I mean, you suck that vacuum to it, sucks it down to nothing. Now, I'm watching this thinking, oh, I need one of those. And I just kind of wanted to know, I don't, what, why would I need one of those? Well, then they answer it for you. See, that's the beauty of that stuff. In the middle of the night, you don't think straight. They'll answer for you. And the answer for me was, if you'll get one of these, you can get your clothes down to just nearly nothing, and that way you can get more of them in your closet. And I thought to myself, that's what I need, more clothes. I need more space for more clothes because Lord knows most of the stuff I have in my closet, I don't even touch it, much less wear it. But I could get more. That's the American way there. So the whole premise of this thing is suck them down so that you can store more stuff in there. That way you can get more stuff. And I think now, okay, I didn't have the presence of mind then to think about it. Now I think, how much is that like us in our daily living? We find ways to compress our schedules so that we can cram more junk in them. Tell me that's not true. I wonder, by the way, lots of young parents in our church family, I love that about us. Every once in a while, I'm going to throw an old man's statement at you, and here's one of them. I wonder, sociologically and better yet, psychologically, what kind of problems are we setting our children up for when we program them 24 hours a day? 50 years from now, 30 years from now, those kids who grew up with something scheduled every moment of every day, how are they going to be able to sit back and relax? But I don't even need to go that far. Let's talk about today. What is the impact of a vacuum-packed schedule on your spiritual life? Teresa used to make fun of me. Well, she still makes fun of me, but she used to make fun of me about packing the car. And then what got me off the hook about packing the car is my oldest son started doing the stuff I was doing. So now that he's the one we all pick on, okay? But here's the basic deal. I could take a, a car that somebody else in my family packed, and I could rearrange it, and I could get three times as much in there as what they did, okay? You know what I'm talking about? Some of you go, I see elbows flying. Yeah, that's my, yeah. Well... We do that with our schedules. We can't fit another deck of cards in our schedules, but we're going to try to put one more card in it, and then we'll put one more card after that. And our lives are so scheduled that we don't have time for God. Oh, we might have time for some religious stuff, but there's something to this where God knows us well enough to say, take a break. By the way, that's a Sabbath teaching. That's a whole other sermon. 
But now it's on those physical things, the things that drive us. We're so busy, but we take time to eat four times a day or six or whatever is your chosen approach. But we, fortunately, we live in a society that's helped us to do that because you can drive in at almost any restaurant now, drive through. Matter of fact, I'm waiting for the day you can go through it 30 miles an hour and throw the money in one side and they throw you a hamburger on the other. Where's God? Where's time for God in that schedule? A denial of the physical so that we can focus in and recenter on God's best for us. So let me put it to you this way. I'm talking now about packing in the garbage. Let me, let me give you my day this morning. I'll be done. I was working through this message and trying to pull it all together. I got really convicted about the stuff I'm talking to you about. I, I'm busy. Now, whether it's productive, busy or not, time will tell, I suppose. I'm busy. That's okay. If I wasn't busy, I'd be finding something else to be busy with. That's just the kind of guy I am. But as I started processing, the, the Lord basically gave me an experiment to run. <laughs> and so this morning, I got up about 4 o'clock this morning. That's not all that unusual for a Sunday, but it's a little bit earlier than normal on Sundays. And uh, I got up and I went in and I, I determined last night that I was going to do this today. So I went in, and I, my normal schedule is that I go in, and as soon as I get up, I go into the kitchen and I make coffee, all right? By the way, if you don't drink coffee, you better get on the stick or you're not going to have anything to drink in heaven, all right? No, that's not true, okay? Uh, but all the cool people will be drinking coffee in heaven, let's just say it that way. No, that's not true either. All right, I'll come back to it. So I get up in the morning, I go in, and I make a pot of coffee. That's the first thing I do. And then I go in and I usually sit down in my chair and I flip on the television because I want to watch the news because who knows what's happened in the last four hours since I went to bed, right? And it's the same drivel, different continents, different faces, but the same drivel day after day when it comes to the television news, right? But I sit there and watch it. That's my normal schedule. Well, while I'm sitting there on the wall immediately behind me is the outside wall to our porch, and our outside dog stays out there. And so when he hears me up, he starts whining. You know why? Because he likes a treat first thing in the morning. So I open the door, give him a treat, and I go back, and I kind of veg out watching. Okay, now that's my normal routine in the mornings. And I somewhere get up and go eat and all that kind of stuff. Before I know it, it's time for me to get up and go to work. And so I get up and do all of that while I'm getting ready. You know, I have television going or maybe an a album or, you know, CD or something going on in the background. Album, that's, an old, that's a big CD, kids, okay? Um, sorry, sorry, I date myself. So, and then it's time to come to work. And then when I get to work, it doesn't matter what I plan because, you know, it's, it's coming from all kinds of different directions. Who knows what it is? And then usually meetings. And by the time I get home, 11 o'clock, I sit down, 10.30, sit down in my chair and go... Whew, I better go to bed so I can get up and do this again tomorrow. On a typical day, where does God fit into that schedule? Back to the question I ask, how much do you desire God in your life? So this morning, I, decide, I determined, last night before I went to bed, I'm going to get up this morning, I'm going to go in, and I'm going to spend time with God. No coffee, no breakfast, no dog, just time with God. And so I did. So I got up, walked in, walking past the counter where the coffee pot is, and I went, 
Oh, wait a minute. I went to my chair. Force of habit wanted to do coffee right away. Went and sat down. As soon as I sat down, what do you think happened? For the dog, man, I reached for that remote and I went to click it on it. So I took a 10-minute news fix and I turned it off. In the midst of that, the dog outside starts whining. When I turned the television off, turned off the lights and everything, just sitting in the dark in my recliner, and I began to pray, God, forgive me for making you peripheral in my life. What does it say when coffee is more important than God? What does it say when I'm willing to feed the dog but not willing to feed my soul? So I'm sitting in there, sweet time of fellowship with God. I mean, sweet fellowship. And God was, I'll just leave it personal. It was just a good time with God. And then I hear the door open and shut in the back part of the house. (laughs) And Teresa says, go find Daddy. Now, you got to understand, no kids live at my house. All right? So... (laughs) Go find daddy means her dog is coming to see me. All right? The dog's name is Pixie. All right? Like I told the teenagers the other night, we'd eat her, but she's not worth the trouble to clean her. All right? She's just so small. So Teresa says, go find daddy. And so I hear the door shut and these claws coming down the floor. And, And sure enough, around the corner, here comes Pixie. And you know what Pixie does? She comes up and scratches on my leg. You know what that means? I want in your lap. So I reached down and I picked her up. I'm in the dark, remember? I'm in the dark. And all of these things already are tearing at my attention. And the dog comes up and scratches me. And I'm going, I don't need this dog right now. Well, I've said that from, since August, but that's another deal. <laughs> so I reach down and I take Pixie and I put her up in my lap. Just like that, she lays down and starts going to sleep. So I'm trying to recapture the spiritual moment. And it's as if God, with a light show, says to me, that's what I want from you. I want a single focus in your life to get out of the far corners of whatever house you're in and come to my lap. And rest. Wow. Normally I'd hit you if you call me Pixie, but you know, that's a pretty good way to be like Pixie. Don't you think? How long has it been since you ran to the Father's lap? I think of that verse of Scripture that we made into a chorus. As the deer pants for the water, So my soul longs for you. You alone are my heart's desire. And I long to worship you. If you sang that now, would you be lying? We can talk about fasting all day long. But the real deal here is intimacy with God. How's yours? Let's pray. So, Father, we ask you to take us beyond ourselves.
straight to the throne of grace. Lord, you know this is not intended to be one of those kind of messages that we all walk out feeling beat up. We pray that you would help us to evaluate our lives now. Draw us back. And all the peripheral garbage that we've packed in, help us to be smart enough spiritually to push it aside. Where Satan has done a number on us, and we've opted for the okay rather than the best. Give us the spiritual sense to get it right. And Father, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, they've never experienced that intimacy in the first place. And right now, they're sitting there wondering what it's like to have a relationship with God. Lord, save them. As only you can do, impress upon them even now, through your Spirit's work, your great love as seen in Jesus Christ. Give them the strength to surrender into life. For the rest of us, the ones who have known you as Savior and yet we've marginalized you in our lives, help us to come home. Whatever that takes and whatever it means, Make it so is our prayer in Jesus' name.